DJ Jazzy just to your um, <laughs> to your Fresh Prince. That's a good one. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, you haven't used that one yet. Okay. I don't think so. All right. Yeah, I was thinking like some hip hop inspired. <laughs> like, I don't want to be as pretentious, pretentious enough to call myself Eric B to your rock him. But you know, like. Oh. Although too. I might, I might. Okay, that's it. I'm married to be the girl right That's it. That's what, that's what we're doing. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, hello and welcome to uh, this edition of... Was Shakes- that all recorded? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're just, say it. just leave it all in. <laughs> I'm very inclusive it's, this it's episode. It's the, the warm-up act uh, to, uh, <laughs> to the podcast. Uh, so, hello and welcome to uh, Shades of Green Chicago. Uh, I'm your host, Juanita Garcia. And uh, <laughs> and I'm Bryant Williams, as you already heard. I'm the uh, I'm the Eric B to her Rakim, the uh, the great the uh, grateful and pl- uh, plucky sidekick along on this journey. <laughs> I'm very excited to have um, a very dear and close friend, um, someone that I consider a sister. Uh, Tony Anderson is on the um, podcast with us today. Woohoo! <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> thanks for having me. This is awesome. Well, thanks for having us. Like, yeah. You know, um, I think I mentioned to you, we, we had been interested in having you as a guest since the very first episode. Our first conversation wow. about the podcast, too. Um, so, yeah, I should mention to podcast listeners that we are at the Sacred Keepers Sustainability Lab in your space. So just so that if they hear any fun sounds. Yes, and they will <laughs> hear <Yeah>. fun sounds. <laughs> and um, typically, we are an evergreen podcast. We try not to give... We try to avoid giving dates and all that kind of stuff, but because um, uh, we record, we're trying to record it um, well in advance before we post these. But today is November 29th. It is Giving Tuesday, so although this will be released well after Giving Tuesday, I'd like to uh, mention a couple different organizations to support on the future Giving Tuesday when this podcast will be posted. I'm hoping that you will go on to the um, Sacred Keeper Sustainability Labs uh, webpage, website, and uh, donate there. You can also donate to... Um, I'm actually powered by... Uh, uh, <laughs> 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 um, actually being powered by uh, Lavalita um, Elvejo. Thank you very much, Kimberly Wasserman. So give to the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. Yes, yes. Um, the Plant Chicago is an, another amazing organization that I can that I greatly encourage you to donate to. And of course, um, my favorite organization is the Southeast Environmental Task Force. So please feel free to go on to any of those websites, any of those web pages, and make a donation to those great, amazing organizations. Yeah, any time in 2017, probably early 2017, exactly. would be, they, the needs go well beyond Giving Tuesday. Yes, so. yes, there's always a Tuesday to give to. <laughs> <laughs> make every Tuesday Giving Tuesday. <laughs> So cool. So we um, typically what we do is we try and find out a little bit about the uh, the guests that we have. So Tony, tell us about yourself. Like, you, so you're a native Chicagoan, right? Born and raised in the Chicago area. Yes, I am okay. born and raised Southside Chicago. Okay. Um, in Bronzeville or further south, or uh, my family's born in Bronzeville, but I was I was primarily raised um, between Hyde Park South Shore. Okay, cool. Where'd you go to high school? Academy of Our Lady, out okay. way out in what I think is called Brainerd Park on 95th and like Loomis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know exactly yeah. what you're Well, it's about. Longwood Charter yeah, something it's now. exactly. Oh, but okay. back then, many moons ago, <laughs> it was a private all-girl high school. 
Oh, and it's a, I think it's a charter school now, but I know exactly what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. It's like right down the street from, ben, right past Vincennes. Oh, um, Big Mother Mary and yeah. Friends. Yes. Cool. Cool. Um, so you're running the Sacred Keeper Sustainability Lab right now, mm-hmm. but how did you get into the environmental field, the sustainability field? What brought you here? Like, That's a long story. Yeah, but we have time. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody picks up. Um, <laughs> leans back. Um, so... Uh, I've always been a tree hugger. Um, My mother was an Arkansas farm girl. Um, We still have family land there. Um, She participated in the ritual that is most African Americans going home for the South Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, in the summertime. School would let out, the whole family would go back to the land, back to the family. And her ritual was to get out of school and go with her father down to Arkansas to help on the farm uh, that my my great-grandparents had, and um, she did that through the age of 13. And when we came along, um, that ritual was gone because at 13, my great-grandmother passed away and the land kind of became the heirs of heirs of heirs, which is, you know, how most of the stuff works. And uh, I think she was trying to, like, figure out a way to give us that, like, gift Mm-hmm. Um, of what it means to kind of like go back to land, go back to nature and self that she enjoyed. Um, but the only thing that was available was like camp and resident camps. So um, my brother, being that firstborn male child who got like all the perks, and uh, he would go down south with my father's father. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, being the girl child baby, it's like, you just, you're going to have to go to camp because we don't know what to do with you. And so I started at the age of seven going to this camp called Camp Algonquin in Cary, Illinois. And um, it was pretty phenomenal in that, like, I was seven sleeping away from home for the first time. Yeah. And every year as I got older, you would, you know, the camp would change. So the first year, the bathroom was inside of the cabin. And then, you know, after a couple of years, the bathroom moved to an outhouse behind the cabin. And, and then by the time I got to like 13, there was an outhouse that you had to have a flashlight and walk to in the middle of the night. And then by the time they kicked me out, because I had aged out, um, we were in the tent unit, you know, only eating one meal a day at the rec hall. All the other meals had to be cooked by the camp on open fire. Um, we were sleeping in these like really elaborate cabins, uh, uh, tents with like cement floors and cots, but they were still tents. And the outhouse was pretty, you know, it was a hike. Yeah. <laughs> were you? Did you have to catch any of your own food? Were you doing any fishing? No, 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 no. We didn't catch our own food. We caught it by going to the, the bass hall. mistress. Uh, <laughs> yes, bass mistress. Um, no, I did not have to like fake catch fish like you did, Brian. Oh, you but. know what? <laughs> 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 not going to have another follow-up to what happened with Viva. We're going to keep it peace and love. Yeah. Peace and love. Okay. No, I, um, I, we, we, would, we would be allowed to go to, uh, walk into the main camp with, like, crates and wagons and go to the refrigerator and, like, figure out what we're going to cook as a team. And... Um, you know, like, it was after that first year, second year, I was pretty depressed. I was, you know, raised by a single mom with a ton of responsibilities, very young. You felt that. Yeah. You felt the 
you know, there's some, like I try to be in my nowness, uh, a parent who kind of keeps the burden of what I go through to make the home, you know, um, sound away yeah. from my kid. But when we were going up, it was kind of like you knew everything. It's yeah. turn those lights off. You're costing me too much money. <laughs> turn those that water off. You can't, we can't afford that. It was yeah. just kind of all out on the table. Yeah. Um, and just the weight of all that somehow I kind of felt and. And I was always kind of a weird kid, so I didn't quite fit in in school. Um, but it was on the walks from school that I started to notice nature for the first time, based on my experiences at camp. Yeah. I really kind of just didn't see trees. I didn't see the grass. I didn't see the flowers. I didn't see these places um, until I was made to go away from the city where that was the dominant environment. Right. And when I came home, I saw for the first time that we really did live in a rich city full of nature and it was amazing and it became my respite like on the way home I would just stop and sit under a tree with my book the way I would in camp yeah. but in the city you look a little bit more weird when you do it <laughs> but I that was the first time that I just kind of said I don't care but from those experiences I learned how to horseback ride I learned how to canoe I learned how to cook on open fire, I learned how to make a fire, mm -hmm. I learned how to do archery and, you know, hike and night hike and those things that just kind of, because I went every single summer, it yeah. woke up this like ferocious love of nature yeah. um, in me and I never quite got over it. Like as, as I became a teenager and young adult, the times that I felt very overwhelmed, I would always go to the lakefront, I'd go to the park, I'd go to the Baha'i temple and walk around the Baha'i Temple just to get myself some peace of mind yeah. and so I just have always been a person who has kind of relied heavily on nature and and what that did to save my life mm -hmm. and then as I got older um, of course I went in the corporate and that wasn't fun but it was what I was good at doing and mm -hmm. it just became one of those just because you're good at it doesn't mean you should mm -hmm. yeah. and then that of course that um, what my best friend and I call um, the uh, it's when you get into like that those years right before you hit forty, and Uranus opposition. That's what it's mm. called. Mm. Google it. <laughs> but homework. it is it is kind of like the homework for y'all is is this thing called the Uranus opposition, and it is that is like like the first midlife crisis that you go through. Hmm where things just kind of start to, all the things that you thought about the world and yourself starts to just completely fall apart. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you start to reevaluate wait, what you're really doing. And during that time, um, you know, I was diagnosed with a rare brain tumor and um, didn't know how I was gonna get out of it. And you know, that moment where you're like, please God, if you save my life, I will dedicate myself to something real. <laughs> And that something real was just like, how do I tree hug for a living and yeah. teach kids how to tree hug for a living? Because that's how I made it through. And um, and then so like, of course, the day that I got the call saying, you know, hey, you're in remission, um, was like 45 minutes later followed up with, you're fired. <laughs> because the bottom had fallen out of the market. It was 2008, 2009. Yeah. And that's when all, you know, yes. everything went to kind of hell in a handbasket. So, but it was from that moment that I really thought it's time for me to dedicate myself to something real because my life can't look like this anymore. 
Yeah. And uh, I started writing environmental programs for different organizations, and um, and then I haven't really kind of looked back since. Well, um, before we get into that, like what what parks did you like? Did did you have like favorite parks that you went to when you were a kid? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, I lived uh, a lot in um, uh, Ellis Park. I was always in that park. I was always downtown. Okay. I was in Sherman Park. My grandparents lived in Inglewood, and they lived right across the street from Sherman Park, and I know that park has all sorts of reputation. Sherman's over on 55th, right? right? 52nd, between 55th and 51st. Yeah, it's got the, uh, there's a uh, library on the, like yeah. the southeast corner of yep. it over on Morgan. Yep, yeah. and when I, I was little, yeah. like, it was the most beautiful park. It had yeah. a lagoon. Yeah, it's bridges. it does have, like, the lagoons It's stuff. gorgeous, yeah. it's yeah. a gorgeous park, despite, Humble Park is another park I fell in love with. My aunt lived in Humble Park. So I would go over to her house, and, and of course back then it was like, you don't go through Humble Park. Like, yeah. You walk 700 miles around it, but you don't go through that park. Or, mm -hmm. And I didn't care, I, I wanted to go through the park because the park was beautiful yeah. to me. So, you know, and that's just kind of a narrative of how I really see the world and how I see the city, yeah. um, is I kind of don't look at the, the bad things. Nature always shows me where the good things are. So if there's a tree there, I'll kind of like, gravitate toward the tree before I'll gravitate to the, like the gunshots that might be whizzing past the tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's just kind of how I am. Yeah. I don't think it was the gunshots so much in Humboldt Park because I went to I went to high school at Westinghouse which was you know, a little bit oh, south yeah, yeah. of um, Humboldt Park. I didn't like, know you were a Westinghouse man. Yeah, no, Westinghouse, we are the warriors, the that's mighty, right. mighty warriors. Right, right. Right. Yeah, you know, so I graduated in 96 but like, you know, when I was there um, Humboldt Park, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't the gunshots and fighting and violence. It was just like all you saw was drugs going yeah. on there. You know, yeah. like you could walk into the park and see needles everywhere. You know what I mean? It was just that's why you avoided it back in my day. So, yeah. you know. yeah. but I had a cousin. Like I, one of my cousins, one of my family members on my mom's side of my family lived directly across the street from Sherman Park. It was absolutely gorgeous. This is a beautiful yeah. park. I mean, it still is. It still is. Yeah. What about you, Owani? Did you have a favorite park, like, as a kid? Just... You know, um, so, I was such a bookworm, and <laughs> I was, I was not comfortable with nature, even now. <laughs> like, I have a healthy respect for nature, and it's not so much that I don't love the trees and flowers, sure. and I don't love, you know, the flora. It's, it's the little bugs that bug me. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, yeah. um... And I think part of it too, growing up, like I was a freckler, and my my immediate family didn't know what to do with that, like because I burned, yeah. unlike the rest of my family. And they're like, she's gonna keep freckling. I don't think that's good for her. And you know, between bugs and freckles and like all this sunscreen, like I just it's like that's all right. <laughs> yeah. I'll just like, stay over here. I'll stay in the air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> my book, I'm Which, fine. <laughs> no, I get it. I'm a big fan of the air conditioning too. Like in the summertime, so. yeah, but, you know, yeah, I think that's why, you know, I, I believe so much in the built environment being a green space and connecting to it and, yeah. you know. And, um, and it goes all the way back to feng shui. The, yeah. You know, the building, having um, flora and fauna within your home yeah. to make it a livable space, you know. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so you mentioned switching careers and that's what we were talking about way back yeah. in our very first episode when we were refer to you like switching careers and then even taking um, going out of your space to learn 
about other environments. So, you know, um, we, we mentioned and alluded to the, uh, the trips that SKSL takes to mm-hmm. Kenya. Um, so we'll get to that in a second. But so you decided to start writing environmental programs. Is this where Project Butterfly came along? Yeah. And yes, I read the, um, the Tony Anderson but, um, <laughs> Wikipedia page. <laughs> <So> <laughs> and I believe everything that I read online. I've done, done some research, you know, like I've talked to people who know you and all that good stuff. So, <laughs> Wikipedia. <you know. laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, there's a woman, um, her name is Niambi Jaha Agals. I give much respect and much thanks to her. I feel a lot of what Sacred Keepers is came out of my experience working with her organization. But she had an, uh, an organization called Camp Butterfly. And uh, she, um, the organization was for young girls of color um, who were um, in post-adoption programs with the um, uh, Department of Children and Family Services. Um, to receive supportive care and she would do this amazing camp every single summer where she would take these girls out to Camp Renora in uh, Waterloo, Michigan and they would stay there for a week and she would do these deep intensive dives around like what does it mean to be a young girl of color in your pain body, in your pain narrative Um, how can you reconnect to your sisters how can you grow a level of support around the women of the community who were there to mentor them in this space and really kind of get them to open up and know that, you know, that her whole saying is they come in caterpillars and they leave monarchs. Um, And that's just how do they, how can you use this metaphor of the transformative elements of the butterfly um, to know yourself better so that no matter what you're going through, you have a basis to stand on. And then um, she was looking to expand the program into more year-round models because she was discovering that she was bringing these girls back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was just a couple of weeks in the summer and they come back and they would be going back into these toxic environments yeah. and have no supports. And um, I would volunteer with her summer program even when I was working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once the bottom fell out and I'm like, well, how can I, you know, do whatever I can to support this organization, um, I felt my greatest gift to the organization's work would be to use that transformative power of nature. Because um, I feel like a lot of the things that she was able to get done in that program um, in that short, intensive week was because when you have the backdrop of nature, doing a lot of the work for you, mm-hmm. it's much easier for you to wake up and, and just go hustle and bustle of the urban city mm-hmm. and not be able to like have those same, you know, narratives, that same aesthetic understanding. And from that experience of that little girl going to camp and coming back and seeing the trees mm-hmm. for the first time, I thought, how can I connect that experience that they just had in nature and help them come back and use nature as a place where they can get some of this transformative work done. So I started writing the Green Butterfly Project for, I'll back up. I actually started working with Veronica Kyle in Faith in Place. And she and I co-created the the Girls Gone Green program. Okay, cool. And then we did that for, that was the very first, um, uh, that was the first like layer of how we started to work with the organization. And then um, Veronica, she went on to do bigger and greener things at Faith in Place. 
And um, when, like, when you were this, this before or after she um, lived in Africa for a while? This was after. Okay. This is when she, like first, when she first came got home. Back. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I was kind of coming off of my like okay. double corporate. Let's get yeah. this done. Yeah. And she was coming from her. I'm just back from Africa. Let's get this done. Yeah. And she wasn't really sure about you know faith in place hadn't become all that it is under her tutelage. Yes. At this point. Um, so we kind of started writing this yeah. model together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and Mama, like, is is um, she's affectionately referred to as Mama Kyle? I don't know how we haven't talked about having her on it. She's a ma- man. Y'all better get yeah. her. She's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, so she'll take over and have her own podcast. Yeah, yeah. We'll be the favorite place. <laughs> the Veronica Kyle <laughs> show. <laughs> show. I'll really be the sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's she's no joke. I had the pleasure of kind of like seeding a lot of my preliminary ideas on what. Um, a green urban program for young women could look like with her. Yeah. Um, so big ups to, to Mama V, that's what I call her. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then, uh, of course, that kind of led into the Green Butterfly Project, which was um, getting the garden on 48th and King mm-hmm. and kind of starting to look at what the partners in the city were doing around how are we talking to urban youth mm-hmm. about urban ecology because at the time that I was really focusing on it, it was all about the food yeah. and the agriculture. Yeah. And um, because of my love of the monarch butterfly and my love of just the ecology of the city, yeah. um, I was coming at it kind of from a like pollinator ecology kind of yeah. perspective yeah. and looking a lot at biomimicry and these processes in nature and how we can adapt them to human behavior and how we relate to one another. And uh, that was kind of a new thing because, you know, and I would go to different gardens and there's like, we grow some collard greens. And I'm like, but let's do more. And they're like, that's useless, you know, because it was just a really dire food desert with the dominant conversation. Um, So even when I first started the garden, um, people kind of walk by and go like, where the tomatoes? And I'm like, they're... That whole patch of over there is for the monarch, and that patch over there is for the honeybee, and that patch over there is for the <laughs> for you, the birds. What year was this? Do you remember like um, time, two, timeline wise? This was like about twenty ten. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Okay. Yeah. So right around when urban agriculture, the term or urban agriculture yeah. and urban yeah. farm, uh, farming was taking over. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, so. Um, um, and what um, explain? So the forty eighth Street. Um, garden that you mentioned there's a uh, farm there's a uh, garden that SKSL runs on 48th and King Drive on the north on the southeast corner of the street I believe yes southeast yeah yeah it's um uh, filled if I remember properly with um, native species specifically to attract pollinators specifically looking for monarch butterflies Mm -hmm. because Bronzeville is along a, a monarch butterfly migratory pathway, correct? Sure, yep. Um, Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then also, if I remember properly, there's a stage mm-hmm. on that, um, at that at that garden as well. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Or I... Sure. Okay. Um, it's my trick bag, so if you're listening to this, you will have to, you will, you know, you might die after you hear it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, you know, early on, the space was really looked at as, uh, you know, this pollinator space, but the gathering aspect of being in that space was really critical to me because that's what the kids in the program would do. They'd mm-hmm. come out 
volunteer their time. We would have sessions in the garden after we'd finish our garden work. We'd sit yeah. down and we'd do circles and connect and do healing work and meditations. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, was, it became increasingly clear. Again, this little girl walked home and saw the trees for the first time was just trying to figure out how can I give people permission to just be in this space for no reason? Mm -hmm. um, so the park aesthetic to the space was really important to me because as a lot of these other gardens are just plot driven, if you're not into growing food mm -hmm. and that whole, where do you see yourself in the space? And a lot of times these gardens don't get the support. Mm -hmm. They don't get the people to show up and care because it's like, that's not for me. I'm not, I'm going to go get my Harold's. Um, I don't know what that's about over there. It looks great, mm -hmm. but I'm about to go pick up my chicken. Right. And, and y'all can keep them collards and you can keep those tomatoes and that's cute, but... No kill? I, no kill, you, know, <laughs> you keep all of that. So, so it became increasingly important for me to figure out a way to like get the space to be inviting to people so then you could like slide in. Oh, by the way... You saw that monarch over there that you just fell in love with? Yeah, well, guess what, you know? And um, so, and the kids literally started to create their own stuff. Like, this is forwarding, uh, you know, speeding up the timeline a little bit to what we do now. But yeah. those first groups that came in the Sacred Keepers were like, now we want to hang out. We've done our work. And they yeah. would put these impromptu performances on of like kicking it and laughing and joking. And I'm like, well, okay, well, I've got to figure out a way to activate the space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I first started thinking about how can we curate space as an intentional thing, I started this uh, Arts in the Gardens program that has, um, we have an artist in residence here mm -hmm. in Sacred Keepers and our first artist in residence uh, worked with another well-known artist in Chicago. His name is Fahim Majid, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he uh, does the. He's an amazing artist, um, and I apologize because he doesn't want to be known for these shacks, but it was what he was doing at the time. <laughs> um, but the Shacks and Shanties projects uh, project were these um, old to Southern cult porch culture kind of thing, where he he'd he'd create these um, shacks reminiscent of you know abandoned shacks throughout you know the south um, and he built one at, at our garden on 48th street and the porch that is now the stage is what you're looking at the stage was uh you know we created the stage after the structure was removed because only the porch was left and um all of these artists would come and curate the inside and outside of the shack um, and you know he's an SAIC you know baby and so most of those you know so it became this really weird thing where we had these like highbrow artists coming down for these artist talks into this little garden on 48th and King Drive <laughs> to have these like really intelligent conversations about what it means to activate space <laughs> and I just wanted a place for people to kick it and yeah. so what was funny is I would just look back and it'd be like 50 people in like stadium arranged chairs, listening to different artists talk about space activation and community. And then I would see all these kids running around and then the lemonade would be over here. Yeah. And the butterflies would be, you know, roaming about and the, the birds, I'd spot something coming into the garden. And I would look back and I would go, this is it. This yeah. is what it's about. Yeah. This is how you get people engaged into 
um, urban ecology, which is something that historically our communities have always done. Mm -hmm. um, inherently, this is who we are, but because of the right to move about space and policing and the transient nature of community, yeah. those things have kind of just fallen away from our culture. Yeah. Right. Wow. No, that's, that, wow. that's awesome. I didn't realize the, 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 um, start of that space like but I've been there with my kids before like, yeah where, and I, I know what you're talking about the kids just running around chasing butterflies and playing in the grass and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. so cool mm -hmm. um yeah no I mean it's, that's great I mean and that's just it like building a space but how do you how do you activate it and welcome people to a space I mean it's easy to to build something and think that um <laughs> you know, it's like the, the if you build it, they will come. <laughs> you build it, they'll come, but it's something they more didn't than come. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at yeah, first, yeah, yeah. they didn't come at first. Like I said, they were like, uh, "Where, where, where's the food?" Yeah, um, because that's the culture of what mm -hmm. you know. We were training them into a certain narrative mm -hmm. around how to engage in community gardening. Yeah, and community gardening in in that time right. was just agriculture. When you exactly. say community gardening. <clears throat> It was this automatic assumption that you were growing food. Yeah. And I was really intentional in trying to change that narrative. Right. Yeah. Community garden can be anything the community wants it to be. Right. Yeah. And at that point in time, the urban ag was just, it was all inclusive. But, you know, like nowadays, we the, the field has matured a little bit where there's oh, a yeah. difference between urban agriculture versus urban gardening. Gardening yeah. is for, for space and, um, you know, activation of space and, beautification and meditation gardens, et cetera, et cetera, and agriculture is specifically for farming, growing food mm -hmm. and um, things of that nature, you know, so, um, so, all right, let's take a step back. So you're involved with, it, it was not Project Butterfly. Camp Butterfly. Camp Butterfly. Yeah. I don't know why I keep wanting to call it Project Butterfly. <laughs> Probably Project Exploration, I'm mixing the two. And at, the, at some point, the book that she wrote that launched that program was called Project Butterfly. Maybe that's why. Oh. Like, yeah. Okay, so I was Camp right. Butterfly, the <laughs> organization. <laughs> Even when I was wrong, I was <laughs> so. as, as As often, Brian, as often. Yeah, the Bass Master. <laughs> so, um, so <clears throat> you eventually were no longer involved with um, Project with uh, Camp Butterfly. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, Mike Rizzo. I saw him recently. You told me to tell you. He said hello. I just talked to him earlier. Well, we emailed each other earlier today. I just saw him. Yeah, yeah Mike's awesome. Um, Mike was one of my early... He's, he helped fund that whole... Yeah. He was the funder that came in uh, when we were still at Camp Butterfly. Yeah, quite as kept. Like, Mike being, working with um, the federal... with uh, Which group is it from the federal government? U.S. Forest Service International yes. Program. Oh, he's helped bring funding to a lot of um, organizations focused for people focused on people of color in the environmental field and the mm -hmm. sustainability field. Um, Quiet as kept, like in the background. I can't say enough know. about him. Yeah. He is a force in Chicago yeah. that people are completely aware, unaware of. He will kill me if he knew I was saying all this because <laughs> he likes it like that. Yeah. yeah. But he is a force. I mean, I've you know Mike's I've gone to the Monarch Institute yeah. in in uh, the labs in. Uh, Minnesota, mm -hmm. uh, Karen's lab in Minnesota. She's the one that created the Monarchs in the Classroom curriculum yeah. and, and that whole project. And they're the ones that get a huge chunk of the of the research cash from U.S. Forest Service on yeah. Monarch work. Um, and 
I've been at these trainings and I've seen how many people are connected to him. Mm -hmm. And it's it's insane. Yeah. Everyone who's got anything to do with urban ecology yeah. have have somehow touched that man. Yeah. Just locally here. I mean I, I was yeah. I met with um uh, Karina uh, Karina Ruiz, Ruiz a couple weeks yeah. ago. I think last week we met up for coffee and she was talking about Mike and yeah. you know how she how um he helped her early in her career and you know I think uh, Rocky uh Raquel Garcia Alvarez mm -hmm. has been helped along the way with him. I mean a lot of people have like you mentioned that involved in urban faith ecology, in place, faith in place, um, lots of, El Valor, uh, South Task Force. I will just yeah. name the list of people yeah. he has reached out. I mean yeah. uh, North Park Nature Center, mm -hmm. you name it, he's Eden's touched place. them. Yeah, yeah, all of us. Yeah. So but um so Ari, how'd you go from project excuse me, Camp Butterfly over to SKSL? Um, so, uh, originally I was looking to kind of like park myself at Camp Butterfly, but then I really wanted to be able to write programs and, and put them in different communities. I was working in Wicker Park. You were with, Pre was there, Cradell yeah. was there at Pree, one point in time. Pree. Right? Well, he was uh, just a supporter. He okay. was at Roots and Shoots at the time. Okay, okay. So he was just one of our collaborative people. He would come in and he just a huge supporter of Camp Butterfly, as many okay. people were. Um and the time had just come, you know, again, the bottom fell out. Um, uh, there were tons and tons of money being, like, nobody was getting any cash out of anything. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is still 2010. Yeah. It's yeah. the recession, yeah. time of the recession. No funders. No funders. All the money. Federal money, state funding. Everything Funding froze. was gone. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know... A lot of the cash that, that Camp Butterfly was receiving was through um, Department of Children and Family Services mm -hmm. for their work with post-adoption girls. And once that money dried up, she really was at a point where she was ready to go and explore different things yeah. that she wanted to do. So the doors closed mm -hmm. on the organization. And I had built so much in the community um, with the green piece and that I was just, well, the, you know, and then I'm sorry, my heart's like, yay, I'm finally free, I finally figured out what I'm, I'm a big girl now, I want to do this work, and, and um, I wasn't at all prepared to go back into corporate, I wasn't at all prepared to, like, figure out a way to shop it with all these different organizations, because even my, you know, my love for the organization, it was, it was a struggle to try to to fit everything that I wanted to do within that model. It was right. still, you know, because it wasn't a green-focused organization. Yeah. Um, I was just bringing that as a bridger yeah. to yeah. the things that she was doing. But, um, it, it, you know, for me to just completely kick the wheels off, I would still, I always still felt that this program could be more if I wasn't, you know, it felt like a wild stallion just bucking, ready to yeah. get out. So. Yeah. I, you know, took a minute and kind of thought some people wanted to hire me to go do work or, you know, do some consulting stuff or write programs. And I thought, you know what, you know, what have I got to lose? Let me just go and, you know, I'm not too dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just see what it looks like for me to open up my own organization. And yeah. um, I met with a couple of women uh, who were, um, for lack of real description, let's just say they were kind of like these spiritual counseling kind of fairies that just showed up and told me <laughs> the right thing at the right time. Yeah. Um, and it was what I needed to know to, to do this work. So yeah. in September of 2012, 
I filed the articles to form Safer awesome. Keepers Sustainability Lab, and we moved into this space like a month later. Oh, wow. So, so we met, I think we met in like 2013. Mm-hmm. So SKSF was still like in its infancy. It's still, we were still babies. Yeah. We just went real fast. Yeah. Like I literally, like I said, it was already, it was already ready to yeah. go. And, um, and the seeds have been planted. So wow. I really believe that when you say yes um, to a calling that makes no sense to your capital future, <laughs> let's just say it that way, yeah. um, that, uh, that the universe conspires to make that agreement with you yeah. and yeah. that the way will be made and the resources will show up and the right people will show up and and that's just what happened. The minute I just said, okay, I will stop resisting. I have no money. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But I say yes. And the minute I did that, like, it seems like the floodgates of this organization. Yeah, so awesome. people think that we're a lot older than we are. And we're not. We just go into our, we will be five years old in September of 17. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. So we've done a lot in a very short period of time. Yeah. So, the, so it sounds like your board should start thinking about ways to commemorate and celebrate that. Yeah, yes, Brian. Yeah. Brian. <laughs> yes, Brian, they should. I wonder what board members I, I could talk I to about that. I don't know, but we'll have to talk about that offline. I don't want my business being out there like that. Again, this is so close to what happened with Biba. <laughs> and I'm going to just, since we mentioned Biba, I'm going to just mention, I, I rode my bike here. You know, ah. So I'm just throwing that out there. You know okay. what I mean? In all the right. cold and all that. So, oh, yeah. Okay, Brand. I'm glad that you're warming up. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the vision for SKSL? Like, I know, it, I mean, like, we've talked about it many a time. So, like, what's down there, like, five years from now, what's your dream? Like, where, where, where would SKSL be? Um, our vision right now, as I, you know, talk to you way back, is to get this to be a, a school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, is really what we're leaning toward, um, our Saturday school program, which we've done now since we opened the doors, it was we yeah. formed Strike School. That's how we got started. Yeah. Um, is September when the schools uh, uh, striked in, in 2012. Um, I was like, good. I need some guinea pigs. <laughs> so um, the the first parts of our curriculum were vetted on those kids who didn't have any place to go <laughs> during that time, and then we launched the Saturday school program. Um, and that quickly became, you know, even the Saturday school, we had kids that were saying, like, I learned more in this week here wow. than I have learned in my school. And why isn't this, can we come back here? Or do I have to go back to my school? Yeah. And it happens on Saturdays. It happens when we do our summer program. The summer kids don't want to go back to school. They want to continue learning here. And it's just been this pull at my heartstrings to, like, you know, what does freedom school really look like? And so Sacred Keepers is really invested in joining the freedom school movement. Cool. And um, so that's one of our big visions. And uh, growing into kind of a global voice for what it means to be um, in a space where climate culture, mindful leadership, Mm -hmm. and spiritual development are kind of at the hub of how we lead community and our youth. Mm. I love that. That's a vision statement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like yeah. Without even having to have like all the board members sit around for like three days and yeah, man, it, like, can we not do that? Just, <laughs> just so you know, so organic, makes so much sense, you know. And I'm not throwing shade at any organizations that I was involved in where the board members were <gasps> meeting together. 
with staff. It sounds like you're kind of earth wrenching. No, not me. No, no, no. no, no. I wouldn't do that. I'm not bitter. <laughs> As he pours. <laughs> um, so, one of the, so, all right, there's a, b- a whole bunch of things about SKSL that I'm, I'm really impressed with. Um, but some of the, like some of the, what are some of the things that you want to point out? Like I, uh, all right, you know, before I even ask you that, like, so the asset mapping that the um, that the Skylab um, did a couple of years ago, like, do you want to talk about that? Like some of the summer programming. I mean, we do so the, much. What are you specifically? So like I remember to? a couple of years ago, like the some of the students were doing like the a, the asset mapping program mm-hmm. project around the summer, like around the neighborhood. I mean, like I think that's so important. Like folks don't really understand the importance of asset mapping within your community and what yeah. it looks like, you know, because people think that asset, you know, the assets are the same from community to community, but communities, you know, you go from Bronzeville to Inglewood mm-hmm. to Roseland to Wicker Park and they're completely different. Yeah. So the assets are, look yeah. different, they take different shapes mm-hmm. and they're located in different spaces within those neighborhoods. So I thought that was a really impressive program or project that you have with students working on Especially given that they're high, they were high school students that were doing that, mm-hmm. and this was, if I remember correctly, this was um, in twenty thirteen, the summer twenty thirteen, in conjunction with the Field Museum. Well, asset mapping is something that we just have inherently written through all of our programs. Oh, so it's just okay. a, it's a key part of the curriculum, um, but we do it in different ways. We pull it apart. We approach it differently. I think uh, with the at the time the Field Museum had a green ambassadors program and we were kind of like partnered with it and they we were you know a recruiter for the kids in that program from the community and some of the kids i think that focus that summer was to look at how different communities um approach outdoor space Mm -hmm. um and and we've approached it you know this past summer we worked with uh Slow Roll Chicago, mm-hmm. um, the Special Services Area 56 Commission, mm-hmm. which is 47th Street between State and St. Lawrence, mm-hmm. um, and Julie um, Kristen Henson from Your Project Forward, who sits mm-hmm. as a consultant to the SSA, cool. um, and uh, Ronnie Harris from Go Bradsville, cool. um, yeah. which you know he has some partnership with the Active Trans Alliance to uh, look at the Dibby for Everyone program mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what does um, uh, what do assets uh, from a, a bikeable, walkable community look like? Um, and the thing that we kind of always steep it in um, that I think makes it unique to to our program is we want the kids to organically form um, what assets they need mm. versus what we're just telling them to go find. Don't find it unless you have a relationship to that asset, oh, wow. or you need the the relationship to the asset. So it's is how what do you need to be a whole sustainable person, a person that lives sustainably within your community, mm-hmm. keeps your dollars within your community, mm-hmm. walks, bikes in your community, mm-hmm. spends leisure time in your community. Yeah. What do you need in order for it to activate that part of how you you come in? Because so many kids get on buses and they go outside. Yeah. For the whole time, and take their dollars, and they take those dollars, and they take that investment, that Mm -hmm. psychological investment, Mm -hmm. with them. It's beyond the dollars because for that age, 
it's more of like, you know, the stories that I remember about my childhood when we're talking about the parks and the yeah. camps yeah. is now I have high reverence for certain parts of the city because that is what I identified with growing up and I'm more likely to take my future generation gotcha. into that. So for me, it's what keeps you sane in this community that makes you say, I'm a part of this. And Bronzeville, of course, has a historic legacy. It's a, mm -hmm. it, it's a pretty vital asset to yeah. all of, yeah. of, of Chicago, you know, much less to the African-American you know, teenager who's mm -hmm. growing up really not understanding yeah. the legacy of what it means to be in a, in a, in a, in a city mm -hmm. that this strong historical anchor for who you are and your identity is available to you to go right. and explore, yeah. Yeah. you know, and, 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 and it's not something that we, you know, you go to, we all know the stats of, of, um, uh, the Paseo Boricua in, in Humboldt Park. We know the historic legacy you get in, you stop any Puerto Rican on that strip and they're able to tell you the significance of that street. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're in that neighborhood because of its historic mm -hmm. significance to who they are mm -hmm. and they're fighting for the assets and, the, and to stay in control of that narrative yeah. because of that understanding. Right. Um, you go to Pilsen and it's the same thing. Yeah. You go to any you know, neighborhood of this. You look at Hegwish you, you, yeah. you know three, four generations living in Hegwish, you know, down the block from each other. Mm -hmm. But I think with a lot of black folks, it seems like it's a little bit different. Different, you know, like we, my grandmother lived, my, my grandmother was born, well, she was born down south and lived in, um, lived in Brownsville, like on 42nd, 43rd and Drexel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she moved out of the neighborhood and she lives in Inglewood now, you know, like she still comes back from every now and then, like, you know, if she's getting, uh, homesick or you know, like wants to run in the a little bit, my dad will give her a ride and be like, oh, hey, remember when we used to live <laughs> right, right. You know, like in this vacant lot. And remember, mm -hmm. you know, you grew up over in this vacant lot, mm -hmm. you know, because all the buildings are torn are down. Gone, yeah. But like we left this neighborhood in droves because we, it's like we didn't um, appreciate it. Comment has this line where he says, the sad part about it is we had houses on the lake. The, um, they tried to move us out because the land we didn't appreciate. You know, like we're literally right down the street from the lakefront. Yeah. You know, we this is a very desirous neighborhood in the grand scheme of things, but we left in droves and mm -hmm. you know did not look back. And know. systematically, yeah. Um, there was a lot that was created to get us to want to get out of here because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot yeah. left of this community, especially yeah. post. Um, you know, after the death of of Martin, mm -hmm. you know, and the whole city went up. Yeah. And. Um, you know, the west side and south side communities, mm -hmm. particularly Woodlawn, Inglewood, mm -hmm. um, North and Lawndale. North Lawndale, these communities, once they got, you know, ransacked, um, there was no plan to ever rebuild or redevelop these, yeah. these communities. Yeah. So, you know, when you're, I was just watching Mahogany the other night, yeah. and, you know, as I was growing up, she was just like, it's Diana, it's a big-eyed brown lady. Yeah. Who, who who's like glamorous. So I just paid attention to that because there were no big-eyed brown girls on, on television. Yeah. And I'm a big-eyed brown girl, so I was very excited. But after watching it, I didn't realize how much like social justice and the role of, right. of Billy D. Williams and how he was out there talking about gentrification yeah. and community development. He, they, it, was, it was shot right here in Chicago. Right. Um, you know, in Woodlawn and I believe some parts of Inglewood 
Right. Um, or even, I mean, Old Man Daily, you know, the original designer, oh, yeah. uh-huh. was, I mean, is on record as saying, like, yeah, I'm tearing down homes faster than they could build them. Exactly. You know? yeah. um, and, you know, also the whole shoot to kill during the civil rights. Yeah, you know, so it was, it was, it was, you know, yeah. not to over-vilify yeah. the black community for divesting in, mm-hmm. its, in itself, right. but the system that was created to, to fuel that, that exodus. Yeah. Um, just like today, Mm-hmm. Um, that that is still in place yeah. in a lot of our communities, right. um, you know. Which brings us to the conversation that we were having before we jumped on the podcast. Ah, yeah. We were talking about, so I finally went over, you know, um, finally made it over to the uh, the Whole Foods over on sixty third in Halstead. <laughs> what a what an abomination! Like this is <laughs> this is a bodega. I mean, it really is. I mean, like as we. <laughs> You know, so I I went in there and I, um, I remember like all the hoopla uh, around the opening and you know the excitement and people parking down the block and having to walk two or three blocks to get to it. So I finally went in there this weekend to pick up a couple of items and I was like, man, this is ridiculous. This is smaller than the Aldi's. That's two blocks over and was already there. Mm-hmm. And Aldi's has lower prices and Aldi's is shifting to all organic anyway. Yeah. So why am I shopping here? Mm-hmm. You know, but um. But, you know, we, we were talking about it, like how they're um, promoting that they have all these local vendors in the store. But, you know, we could have just shopped with those local vendors and they got 100% of that money that we were spending with them as opposed to them having to, you know, break off um, half, you know, uh, half or maybe 60% or whatever to Whole Foods before they got it. Are they right? at least distributing them beyond Inglewood, those smaller vendors, like are they helping um, them throughout the city, or are they just in staying in the defense of Whole Foods? I think they have local vendors within all of their locations. Yeah, yeah. but I don't know if they have those vendors. No, in all okay. locations. well, I don't think so. that they do. And 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 from the local standpoint, and from a production control, yeah, um, I don't know if it's advantageous for them to be selling to the whole city. Right. Um, I really think, you know, for me, I'm a small business model. I think that every mm-hmm. community should have its own incubator yeah. of, yeah. of businesses that are, you know, yeah. sustaining that particular community. Right. Um, kind of like the plant Chicago at 1400 West 46th Street. Shameless plugs. It's just oh, a, what is their next uh, indoor market? Oh, it, um, you know, indoor markets are first Saturdays of every month during the during the course of the winter. Just throwing that out there. I, I, I got a pimp, you know, like shamelessly pimp some organization. Gotta, of course, it's, I feel that way about the Healthy Food Hub. Um, at the you know Healthy Food Hub is another like amazing we opportunity over, over east on um 79th Street. Yes. Right? Saturday mornings. Saturday mornings. Yes. Um, then there's the um, uh, Culture Connection. Um, there's so many organizations and businesses that are the hubs for mm-hmm. these vendors. The the issue is that where has been the hullabaloo mm-hmm. for the Healthy Food Hub, for the Culture Connection, right. for these different organizations <clears throat> that have been using their space as a model yeah. for yeah. small business activation. Um, you know, it's great that the whole city wanted to go to Whole Foods and, and you know, it's our fault that it took a Whole Foods yeah. to make this. I'm not going to vilify the model. Right, right. All I'm saying is that the sadness for me is that 
these vendors existed mm -hmm. in some space. There's Bonsante in Hyde Park. Mm -hmm. There's a million tons, you know, lots of small vendors yeah. that are vending bath and body mm -hmm. out of that space. Um, where is the hullabaloo for them? Exactly. Where is the hullabaloo? Well, Eric Williams, he doesn't need anybody to hullabaloo him. He's got his whole thing. But the Silver Room is another, yeah. you know, there's tons of spaces. Yeah. Bernard... Uh, Lloyd is over on 47 is Urban on Junction, 47, you know, the Urban Juncture, and he's yeah. got his incubator. And there's a lot of us down here already doing this work yeah. of pulling these businesses together. Um, but the excitement from our community isn't as robust as when Whole Foods came, and it's just you know, yeah. sad. Yeah, because <laughs> it's like all, far too often. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of like what we were talking about with Daniel Quinn and his um in some of his work, the, mm -hmm. the Ishmael series, and my Ishmael you have, you know, he talks about mother, <clears throat> talks about mother culture and how it's, it's influence on people. You know, so you need that, that approval of mother culture. Yes. You have it now that you have Whole Foods yep. accepting you. And I'm not vilifying the business model of Whole Foods doing that. I mean, like, they could have easily come into the neighborhood and be like, hey, screw you guys. Like, right. we're, we got our we're vendors. Do, and we don't need none of y'all. Yeah, bring your money in here. And, and we along. got these vendors from over here. Yeah, we're bringing them. <laughs> but, you know, like, what bothers me is that they came into that neighborhood and made such a big, you know, all the, um, made so, caused all this histrionics about it and gave us half a store, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, like Mariano's down the, down the way from here on 39th and King Drive is, like is, a, a, is a full... It's a football field. Yeah, I mean, like, that's... Like, I think it's big, it's big as, if not bigger than any other Mariano's I've ever seen. Yeah, that, and that's know. the point, right? That yeah. that all the other Mariano's are about that size. Yeah. It yeah. isn't like it's... Why, why they, cut it in half just mm -hmm. for this? The only thing that I will say about both the Mariano's and the Whole Foods coming into these communities... You know, outside of what we know they're here for, we know mm -hmm. that there's a gentrification. Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, it is fostering the gentrification and the yeah. comfort. Yes. It is, these these projects are not for the comfort of who's here. It's for the yeah. comfort of who's Who coming. they're trying to attract. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, beyond all of that, I, I am in love with the fact that when I went into that Whole Foods, that there were so many young people who had jobs. Mm -hmm. I'm overjoyed at the fact that when I, I was laughing because as I was, I went to Mariano, uh, Mariano's just before you guys got here. Mm -hmm. And um, I looked over at the sushi section, and there was a sister running the city. There's no other Mariano's in the yeah. city where the sister is holding down the, the sushi making. Right. And that was pretty cool, because I'm like, they, they stayed true to it all the right. way through. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but it's it sad. It, it, I looked at that, and I thought, well, it's really good that all these people have jobs. You know, there have been a couple of times, you know, as they were ramping up and, and organizing the store that I saw. You know, kids leaving, walking down King Drive with their Mariano's uniform on, and I would just pull a car over and be like, you know, how are you liking it so far? And I'm noticing that you're on foot. Where are you coming from? And they would tell me, well, I live down there. I was like, how does it feel to be able to walk to your job? And they were like, amazing. You know, so for those reasons, it's great because for whatever reason, the small business model and the black community cannot transcend its mm -hmm. own needs enough to be able to become an employer of the people and that's where we really want small business to get to it's mm -hmm. okay to just be able to pay my rent and and peddle my wares and get my gas and lights paid for but until we can get models that really can become hubs of employment um you know we're just not there yet 
and, and that's the yeah. only thing that I would say um, that it is a good thing to have a Whole Foods and a Mariano's come into the community because at least it can employ a large number of those community members.